Good morning. Um, one of the things that God did not give me was incredible rhythm. And so I may have put on paper a series of couplets in that email, but I'm not making any promises that it was any good whatsoever. Um, well, we're going to continue our series on Christianity 101, and uh, we're going to talk about prayer. And so though this is a topical series and we can talk generally about prayer, what I want to do is root us in a scripture. And so we're going to be in Matthew 26, verse 39 today. And uh, if you're a note taker, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and go there now. We won't get there quite yet. But if you are here today and you don't have a Bible, if this is all new to you, uh, there are free Bibles for you out in the front uh, area that we, we would love for you to have. I'm embodying Redeemer Midland today. We would love for you to have that. Um, and so before we jump in to prayer and even get to the point of talking about what is prayer, uh, at the risk of doing the thing before we talk about it, I'd love to pray for us. And then we're going to go into a little bit of context on what, what we're talking about and kind of looking at this verse in relation to the greater Bible. And then we're going to sit down and kind of settle into uh, that, that verse for the majority of our time. So let's pray. Father, we love you and uh, we are grateful for the chance to get to talk with you and grateful for the chance to gather today to study your word together. Um, Lord, would you, would you just protect me from any desire to be impressive, and would you create space just to speak through me? Lord, it's you who changes hearts, and um, we trust that you do and you will. And God, as we come in here and we have all sorts of distractions and things that can take our mind away from what you may have for us, Lord, would you keep those at bay and allow us to settle in and just tune in to what, uh, what this scripture and what this passage may have for us. In your name, amen. All right, so this verse that we're going to eventually get to, Matthew 26, 39, where, where we'll get to is that uh, as I was praying about time together, one of the things that just I felt compelled to is what teacher would we want to look to for prayer? And in this passage, we'll get to see Jesus, the Son of God, uh, praying to his heavenly Father. And so who better to learn from than the best teacher actually walking out the things that he would teach us about? And so before we get to that, I want to zoom all the way out, kind of in the spirit of Christianity 101, but also to set some context as we talk about what prayer is. I want to go all the way to the beginning. And so you don't need to turn there, but if you were to open your Bibles to the very beginning of the book, uh, the very first page, it would say, in the beginning, God. And that it's relevant for us to know that in the beginning, God always has been. And so God has always been, this isn't going to be a study on the Trinity uh, and God's structure today, but we, are, we do need to hit on a couple pieces of it, that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's important because we have a relational God. We have a God that has always been relational. And so then as he goes forward into Genesis, what we see is him creating. And so all of the things that we know were formed, that we have earth and we have land and water and we have light and we have bee animals and we have uh, vegetation and all of these things as they were made, it was good. And then as we think about the first week of this series, Imago Dei, we, he made man and woman in his image and called them very good. And so then that man and that woman, Adam and Eve, that they walked in this amazingly luscious and beautiful garden where they lived out their days. And as they were living out their days, they had a heavenly father that they were walking with intimately in relationship. And they did that until they stepped into a disobedience with him, which we would call sin. 
And so when that happened, there was this severing that happened and two forms of death came about. The first form of death that came about was physical death, that you have a world that is now broken. You have things that begin to die and that's really significant. And it changes the entirety of right, how we know our world. But there's also a relational death that happens, which is really significant, that all of a sudden you have a perfect God and now imperfect people. And a perfect God can't engage with an imperfect people in the way that he once did when we were both good, when we were perfect and very good. And so then what we see as we go through the entirety of the Old Testament is this idea of uh, a perfect God that is seeking his people and an imperfect people that continually turn away, turn back and turn away, turn back and turn away. And that in the midst of that turning back and turning away, that this idea of sacrifices became a thing. And it's this idea that you take an animal that is thought to be blameless and you would sacrifice it and say, I recognize that I've done wrong. Let me surrender to you, Father. Let me present this to you. And then make me good temporarily, like turn around, stub my toe, say something I shouldn't, and all of a sudden we're right back where we started. And so it was this imperfect process, but it was pointing to the fact that all the way back at the beginning, that there was this idea that there would be a sacrifice, there would be something that would squash the head of the serpent, which is this idea of getting rid of sin once and for all, beating sin once and for all, that we're looking to. And so this is a repetitive story throughout the Old Testament until you get to the New Testament. And if we go all the way back to the beginning, that son of God chooses to surrender his position and come as a baby. And that baby's name is Jesus. And that Jesus lives this perfect life, this thing that we know nothing about. We can't do it. That Romans would say we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. Jesus can do the thing that we can't do. And so he faces, and it's relevant, all of the temptations that we face, all of the struggles and hardships that we could face. And he says, I'm not going to, in one single instance, turn my back on my heavenly father, but then I'm gonna choose to willingly step into taking the weight of all of our sin and all of our mess when he chooses to surrender himself to die on a cross, which is what we celebrate and mourn on Good Friday, goes into a tomb, and then three days later on Easter Sunday, we celebrate not just pretty dresses, which is awesome, and Easter egg hunts, which is awesome, but this idea that we have a Savior that rose from the dead and defeated death and defeated sin so that this relationship that has been severed for so long can now be made right again. And we have a Heavenly Father we can engage with relationally in a way that we couldn't before because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so then Jesus ends up ascending into heaven, and we're in this place now where that's done and we know it and we have a father that wants to engage with us, but we're still in a broken world. And as we're in this broken world, we continually are pulled in different directions and yet we are waiting for Jesus to come back one day and make all things new. And so as we think about that entire arc of this relational God that's seeking his people and the significance of Jesus, where we're gonna settle in today in Matthew 26, verse 39, is we're gonna go right into the night before Jesus is turned over to authorities as an adult. And we're gonna see how he spends the last handful of hours that he has. So if you'll read with me, uh, and actually before we read, I'll give you a little bit more micro context that in this last handful of hours, Jesus just did what we call the last supper. So he just had some dinner with his closest friends, talked about some of the things that are coming, gave them some encouragement and some challenge. And then he had a handful of hours left and he said, uh, what I wanna do more than anything is I wanna go into a garden where I can pray to my heavenly father. And so he takes the whole group out and he says, y'all hang out here. 
And then he goes a little bit further and he brings three of his disciples with him, Matthew, James, and John. And he says, y'all post up right here with an earshot of me. He's just continuing to disciple his people and he hangs out and he goes and seeks his heavenly father. And as he's walking in that garden, it references that he's overcome with pain, even to the point of death. And that what commentators would articulate is that as we think about him being in a perfect relationship since the beginning of time, so in all eternity, that there's both a preparation for a physical death that Jesus is about to endure, but he's about to endure separation from his heavenly father temporarily for the first time. And that's really significant. So let's read together, Matthew 26, 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Hey, at my home church, we do this thing that just make, it'll make me feel at home, that when I read a scripture like this at the start, that I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And when I say that, you guys all get to say, thanks be to God. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I won't ask much of you today, but I'm going to have y'all help me with this one. So this is the word of the Lord. Come on. That's great. All right. So let's jump right in. Uh, Out of the gate, the first thing that I want to talk about is what is prayer? So we see here that Jesus is uh, falling on his face and it says he prayed. So what did he do? That word is the Greek word prosyukomai. And prosyukomai is actually two kind of root words put together. And it's the word pros and yukomai, okay? Now I'm not a Greek, uh, I'm not fluent in Greek. And, uh, and so what I did is I went to a couple tools that are free to people online, looked back at the original text and said, help me understand what this means. All of us can do this. But if I find it really helpful to get away from just what's the English language saying, sometimes words like prayer that we may take for granted and make sure we know what it's really talking about. So the word prose there is this idea of turning your face intentionally toward or even coming face to face with. And so there's this intentionality of what Jesus is preparing to do. And yukomai means to wish for or to talk with God. So the word prayer, you probably aren't that far off from maybe how you would have defined it yourself, but it is with intention and with focus, turning and talking to your heavenly father. But notice I said to, not just at. Because the truth here is that if we were to continue to read beyond this one verse, that there is a, uh, and even in the way that Jesus communicates, you can see an expectation that it's Jesus talking to his father and expecting feedback. That we have a living God that is in heaven that wants to meet us where we are. And in that relationship, he can change our heart and he can speak to us in ways that are significant. And so the way that we're going to walk through this verse from this point forward, I have a couple misconceptions that uh, I think can be somewhat prevalent about prayer. And we're going to hit on those and then see how this verse kind of gets at some of those things on what is true. And so the first one is the misconception that prayer is a box check responsibility of the Christian. Prayer is a box check responsibility of the Christian. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that there's a couple buckets of a day or a week that become relevant to us as we think about prayer. We do it before meals. We make sure we knock that out. We do it on Sunday when we're here. And like that, that, that is the responsibility that we have to make sure that we're following through on our duties. None of those things are bad. And yet what we're seeing here with Jesus is something far more intimate. 
we're seeing that he is wanting and needing a relationship with his heavenly father and communicating with his heavenly father in these really significant hours before he is surrendered to authorities. And so where we may think it's this box check responsibility, the truth is prayer is a means for relationship. And as we think about Jesus and this idea of what does he want and what does he need, these are his last few hours of freedom. He could be doing anything that he wants to. He, he dined with his closest friends and now he has this pocket of time and he knows what's coming. The Bible makes that clear. He knows what's coming. And he says that what I'm going to do is go and get filled up and bolstered by my heavenly father. I don't know about you, but if I feel a bunch of weight and anxiety and stress, there are a lot of other things that I could be tempted to turn to. It's like, maybe I just want to unplug, and maybe I just want to go watch a show on TV and just kind of separate from the intensity of something, or grab a drink, or even choose to fill myself with work or other responsibilities. And what Jesus is saying is, I know what I need to be able to walk out what God would have for me, and what I need to even just be uh, equipped for today, for this moment is to sit with my heavenly father. And it's not just that, it's also what he wants. It makes me think about, uh, there's a king from the Old Testament, his name's David. And David is known as a man after God's own heart. David has this incredible army. He has this amazing wealth. He has this kingdom. And when asked in uh, Psalm 27, four, uh, not when asked, but when praying in Psalm 27, four, what he says is that the one thing that I would ask that I would seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze at his beauty and to inquire in his temple. That I just, of anything I have or could have or experience, like the one thing that I want more than anything is to watch and to sit with my father, to look at his beauty and gaze at it and to ask him questions. And I think that David says, and Jesus is showing us, that prayer is about way more than just a couple obligatory knockouts throughout the day, but it's an invitation to a relationship that can be really deep. And it's not lost on me. I think that, uh, that the, 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 the dynamic of saying, okay, I get it. Like there's this heavenly father that wants to talk to me. I can talk to him, but it still feels a little bit ambiguous. It's like, how do I do that? What does that look like? When I think back to the uh, biblical narrative that we were talking about and that Jesus was relational from the beginning and that we were made in his image, that what we can see is that we were made in this way that we have family units and that we have relationships that we care about with intention. And one of the things that's been really helpful to me has been to be able to think about where do I have relationships that are really healthy? Where do I have relationships that are unhealthy? And how can either one of those help inform how I think about what it looks like to relate to my father? And so uh, at the risk of making her uncomfortable, I'm gonna give you an example of my wife, Allie. I thought about doing this thing where I pretended, I said that we had a good relationship and then pretended like I couldn't talk about her and try to get a laugh, but I didn't think it was gonna go well. And so what I just realized is like, what's better is just to speak the truth. I've been married to Allie for 10 years. We have four really sweet kids together and I adore her. My adoration for my wife is off the charts and it, and it just, it's been growing day by day, week by week, year by year. And part of that is that I can talk about who she is, that I know that she is an introvert that feels the safest in small groups and that she took a chance on marrying an extrovert that loves parties. I can tell you that she is an incredible caretaker in the way that she cares for our four children, our new dog because we were gluttons for punishment and the fifth child that's in front of you here. 
And I can tell you that when I get through my days and they've been awesome, I wanna talk to her. And that when I've had days that are really bad that I come home and I, and I wanna share those with her because I know that she's gonna just listen half the time. She's gonna speak into my life some of the time and she's gonna be a dialogue partner for me as I'm processing through where my heart's at on something. And if I'm being honest, the familiarity that I have with that doesn't really necessarily always match up with the engagement that I have with my heavenly father. And if that's what I can have with an imperfect, a really wonderful and yet imperfect wife and an imperfect husband, how much more significant can my relationship be with a perfect father and an imperfect Matt? And so practically, what could this look like? We have a God that wants to talk with us. And so my head pops off my pillow and I have a big meeting later that day immediately I can realize that I'm anxious and I can take off, go get ready and head for my day or I can take 30 seconds to just say, hey God, I'm feeling anxious right now. I don't know what to do with it, but I would love for you to help. As I continue through my day, I have a slew of meetings and I'm walking down hallways and I'm going in, probably running late from something else and trying to jump in and knock out an agenda. But what would it look like in the middle of the day as I'm walking down the hallway, not disrupting my day, to just invite God into what is happening and actually ask if there's maybe something unique about the person I'm sitting across from that would be great to be able to encourage them in. I get home and our kids are running amok and one of them needs to have discipline and I am angry about it. And so I'm going down the hallway and uh, there's an author, Justin Early, that has uh, a quote. He just says, as he's going down the hallway to, to be able to discipline his kids, he, he will often just say, Father, remind me that I'm more like them than I know. It's like, help me get my heart right. When you're doing one of your hobbies and something goes really well, just say, God, that was awesome. Thank you for allowing me to do this and enjoy it. It's not rocket science, but it is relationship. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This passage that we're studying and stepping into with Jesus, he's embarking on a really hard endeavor. And there may be some of you in this room right now that are embarking or in the middle of a really hard endeavor, a really stinky situation, something that's just not going right, hurting. And I think you can look at this passage as we continue to dig into it and to see what it looks like for Jesus to walk it out with a father that has significant compassion and this directly applies to you. And for others of us in the room that are currently walking on a high or going through the motions, what this verse here in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says is pray without ceasing, rejoice always. In all of the things that we have going on, that there's room for us to rejoice. That we have a God that wants to talk with us and he wants to talk with us all the time. So let's jump to misconception number two. Prayer is like asking for a wish from a genie in a bottle. Prayer is like asking for a wish from a genie in a bottle. And if you've heard this idea before, or maybe in other messages, uh, if you're like me, maybe a guard goes up. Even when I was thinking about saying it, a guard goes up that is like, no, that's not me. Like, that's, I get what you're saying, and uh, that's not where I'm at. Just bear with me if you're in that bucket, because I think there could still be something in here for you. Um, but this idea of saying, man, I know what I want. I know what it should look like. 
and I know when I want it, and I need to get God to give it to me. And when he doesn't give it to me, he's wrong. And it feels really aggressive to say it that way. But I know that I've prayed that way before. And I can think about, I think we can do a little thought exercise kind of simply about, uh, if we think about um, Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, that he has this idea, he's like a little kid and he's like, I wish my family would disappear. And the arc of the movie kind of gets to this point where he's like, man, that was really not great thing to pray for, like, or ask for or say, like, I don't really want that. I love them. Uh, They just anger me. So if we were to let everybody in this world say whatever they wanted and immediately it would happen, we'd have a lot of really janky things happening. And we have a God that is gracious enough that he doesn't let that happen. But it does not mean that he doesn't want to hear from you. And so if we continue looking here, what you're going to see as we hear Jesus talk to his heavenly father, you're going to see three things, humility, honesty, and trust. Humility, honesty, and trust. And so the first thing that we see is that he falls on his face. This is a really foreign concept in general, like American culture, right? For me, for me even to do this is like a little bit foreign. It, I feel a little bit vulnerable choosing to get on my knees in prayer. To fall all the way on our face is a sign of humility. It's Jesus saying, look, God, I know who you are and I know who I am. You are my father and I am your son. And even more so for us than the son of God who's lived a perfect life, that what we should think about is uh, what is our posture when we come in in prayer? One of the ways that I think we can help our hearts get to a place of humility in addition to our physical posture of what we do is how we start our prayer with our words. And that as we begin, if we choose to start our prayers by saying who God is, what we know about God relative to who we are, that all of a sudden it's pretty hard to have a position of arrogance or self-righteousness. That if we're like, okay, you are the creator, I am the created. You are the savior, I am saved. You are my protector and I need to be protected. You are my strength and I'm feeling weak. That all of a sudden as we come into that position, we remember in this prayer who God is and why we're turning to him. And then he goes on from there and what does he say? He says, uh, if this be possible, let this cup pass from me. So just to like cut to the quick of what Jesus is saying here, he says, hey, in that whole like biblical arc thing we were talking about, that really necessary thing of dying on the cross and rising again, but enduring physical physical death and relational death, like temporarily, that whole thing that was really relevant in the story, like I would love a different way, Father, because I'm not feeling all that excited about what's coming. It feels burdensome. He's being honest about where he is. There's nothing more honest about where Jesus is at than that truth, that he is asking God if there's a different way. And so there is no uh, question that you can ask, no doubt you can have that is too big for your heavenly father. If you're wrestling with it, put it before him. There is no darkness, no sin that is too dark for him to be disinterested and unwilling to hear what you have to say. It actually says in Psalm 139, one and two, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, 
you discern my thoughts from afar. Prayer is not about telling God things he doesn't know. He already knows what you're thinking and what you're feeling. And that can be a great comfort to us because there's nothing that we can't then choose to bring before him because there's nothing new to him. But what he wants is our affection and our relationship. What he wants is our humility and our honesty. But it doesn't end with our honesty because then he goes on to say, but not my will, yours be done. What Jesus is saying is like, in my heart of hearts, here's where I'm currently at. But I also recognize that where I'm at may not be what's right. And in, in trust, I'm going to trust that you, my father, know what's best. And that I want to be able to turn my heart and bend my heart to where you're at if where I'm at isn't where you're at. So uh, for the last 12 months or so, I have been in this career transition. And, um, and, and the lead up to it was decently long and uh, was pretty exhausting. I felt beat down. I didn't feel necessarily like myself. I, I had some healing that needed to happen. Like there was just, I felt worn out. And as I was shifting into this transition time, I had one real specific question that I had for the Lord, which is like, what should I do next? And even in the midst of that question, what I knew was that there was this welling up inside of me that whatever I do next was gonna be something that felt more aligned with uh, God's heart and his desire for me than the cultures and the experiences that I've been walking in previously. And it's like, I think that's a hard thing to argue is a bad thing to ask for, right? Like that feels pretty good. Like I think we have a lot of things that we want that are good things. Maybe we want a spouse. Maybe we want a friend. Maybe we want kids. And that we feel these desires for these things that feel like they could be really good things and they're not coming the way that we want them to at the time that we want them to. And it feels hard to argue with that concept. And so this prayer that I had and this welling that I had went from a day to a week to a month to a couple months. And then I'm six plus months into asking and trying to discern with zero clarity, what is it that I'm stepping into next? And I'm growing frustrated. Some days are good days, but then other days I'm just like, what the heck? And so then about a month and a half ago, we were driving in a car as our family and um, recall ages six, four, two, and six months, our, our two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old sits in the captain's seat right behind my wife. And his name is Dylan. And Dylan uh, is our adventurer. And so as we get in and out of the car, he can't buckle and unbuckle himself. And so he, he yells out to me and he's like, hey, I want to unbuckle. And, uh, and he's at an age right now where it's a little bit like the broken record dynamic. If he doesn't get your attention, and maybe if he does get your attention, he's just going to say the same thing again. I want to unbuckle, want to unbuckle, want to unbuckle, want to unbuckle. But it's also as though the person on that turnstile that has the volume is a little bit hard of hearing and it just keeps escalating up until they get there. And so it's actually like, I wanna unbuckle, I wanna unbuckle, I wanna unbuckle, and it's elevating. And the only thing more intense than that elevation is my annoyance and frustration from the captain's seat or from the driver's seat growing. 
And I don't even have the chance yet to turn to tell him what's going on, which is that we are driving 75 miles an hour down a Dallas highway with traffic all around us. And this is the same two and a half year old adventurer that the Strebex experienced flipping and diving in his, their pool yesterday, that if I roll that window down, he would undoubtedly dive out just because it looked fun. And he is so confident in his position right here. I want to unbuckle. I want to unbuckle. I want to unbuckle that he knows that's the right thing for him. And so as I turn around with, honestly, some anger to try to set him straight on why he needs to chill, I turn and I feel like immediately the only thing on my mind is this idea of Matt. How often is this how you pray to me? I want to unbuckle. I want to unbuckle. I want a new job. I want the right job. I didn't think that I had a genie in a bottle issue until I realized that really my frustration was still not trusting that in the timeline that God's using and in the way that he chooses to unveil or even answer certain prayers that I don't like the way that he's doing it and he is wrong. Man, that sounds so twisted. Matthew seven eleven says this. It says that if you then who are evil Know how good to get how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? As much as I want to give good gifts to Dylan, of which the one he's asking for right there, though it doesn't seem unreasonable, isn't healthy for him for a number of reasons that he can't see. How much more is my heavenly father wanting to give me good gifts? as we walk out our relationship together. And so misconception number three, we need to pray the right words the right way. We need to pray the right words the right way. There's kind of two elements to this in my mind. We need to pray the right words the right way to God or for God, and we need to pray the right words the right way for others. So on that first one, we need to pray the right way, the right words the right way for God. Let's look at how Jesus walks out talking to his heavenly father here. I picked a verse, y'all. And, and if you were to keep reading, this verse is an hour of time that he is basically saying, God, I'm humbling myself before you. And he says, this is what I want. And your will be done, not mine. That if we can take the example of Jesus to say, we don't need to be overly wordy. We don't need to have the perfect words to be able to articulate something because he already knows our heart. He just wants us to show up. And then the other one being that we need the right words, the right word for others. That um, I think about this story, I'll make it quick, but that when I was first dating Allie, I was a month and a half into dating her. She comes from a really big family and uh, I get to meet them all for the first time all together with some of their closest friends at a potluck dinner. And so I show up and I want to be the good new boyfriend. And, and so I'm like meeting people and I'm running to the restroom, like writing down names, trying to think about what people are doing and how I can keep track of them. Yeah, it's kind of strange, but it was just what, where I was at. So at any point, any point the, uh, we get to the point where we're about to eat and we get this big, big circle. And they're like, hey, Matt, would you pray for us? And I'm like, no, <laughs> sure. And immediately my mind goes to, okay, who do, how long do I go? Do I go long? Do I go short? Like how spiritual do I make it? Like I don't, well, do I need to say a verse in this thing? Like what, who do I need to thank? Whose house is this? I don't, is Allie her name? I don't, I don't like, I, all of it is just feeling overwhelming because I'm focused on them. 
I'm missing him. And I think that as we think about our posture of getting on our knees or our face, as we think about how we pray with other people, that we choose to pay attention to what's happening around us and what's culturally acceptable or what other people are gonna think and not just focusing on the fact that he is worthy of all of our affection and all of our attention. And so as we move towards uh, closing out together, we're gonna get some time to pray together. And I just think about, as we think about this story and this verse specifically around prayer, that what's about to happen is that that same Jesus that is praying this is about to go pay it all for you. He's about to pay it all for me. And that that love is so significant that where we are today, where we're coming in and we're angry with him about something or we're coming in or we're hurt by him about something that we need to lay before him. We, we are feeling uh, overwhelmed by life's circumstances or maybe we just haven't been turning to him in prayer the way that we feel convicted we should. He is just waiting for us to turn to him and to say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me and meet me where I am because I wanna seek you more. And so what I wanna do, I'm gonna close this out in about a minute, but we, uh, we're gonna pray together, individually together. And so uh, as you think about, we're gonna give, I'm gonna give you about a minute to just talk to your father, just by yourself. And I think that in this passage, we have a really simple way of looking at what it can look like. God, here are some things that I know to be true about you. And in light of that, what I know to be true about me. Here is honestly where I'm at with something that I wanna lay before you. And help me to remember that I want what you want and let me walk in trust. And so I'm gonna let you you go ahead and take some time to pray. There's actually kneeling benches if you are so inclined in the front and in the back, but you're welcome to just stay where you are. And then I'll close this out in just a few minutes and we'll move to worship. Father, we love you and we are so thankful that you are a God that wants to talk with us. We don't deserve it and it is miraculous that you want to talk with us, that you know us intimately more than we even know ourselves and that you are always available for us to turn to you for celebration and for hardship 
and with questions. You are the perfect father that we can barely dream of. So God, as we turn to you today and try to articulate who you are in light of who we and who that means that we are, God, and we get honest with you about the things that we are feeling and processing through, the heavy burdens and the uber joys, God, that we would uh, feel your presence and that we would trust you with all things. We love you in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.